Well, I invite you and encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1. The guys have some Bibles. They're going to make their way to the back. If you need a Bible, just get their attention, and they'll give you one of those, and it'll be your Bible. Bring it back every week as we look at God's Word together. Colossians chapter 1. We'll have one more week next week in what we call our State of the Church Address. And next week, at the end of the message, we're going to do something different than what we've done in the past. Most of you know that the way we have observed the Lord's Table communion at our church is a few times a year we set aside the entire worship service for that. We're going to continue to do that. But we want to add some additional times for observance of the Lord's table. These will be quicker, and at the end of the service, uh, a few times, the first of those is going to be next week. Two weeks from today, January 22nd, is the infamous anniversary of the Roe v. Wade decision from the Supreme Court, and so the Sunday closest to that date is always Sanctity of Life. It's on that very day this week, this year, Sanctity of Life, and we always, uh, every year, set aside that Sunday to speak to life issues. So two weeks from today, I'll be doing that. And then after that, we're going to do just a few weeks of a mini-series on the subject of prayer. And that's because the beginning of a new year is a good time for evaluation, yes, for all of us personally, but also for God's church in one area of improvement for our church is this issue of prayer and what it is that we pray about. So two, uh, three weeks from today, we'll start that series, and then after that, we'll return to and conclude our series in the book of Acts. But for these first three Sundays of the new year, we're doing what we always do. We have a mini-series called, as I said, the State of the Church. Last Sunday, on New Year's Day, we saw from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 an example of a church that we want to emulate because that church is called a model church by the Apostle Paul, the only church in the New Testament that is called that. And Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians and the passage uh, we're going to be looking at today. We want to be the kind of church Paul could commend as he did the Thessalonians. If Paul were here today, it should be our desire for him to be able to look at our church and its ministry and to be able to commend us as he did them. And that's the kind of church we saw last week that reproduces itself. It's a church that grows internally and as a result branches out externally, starting other churches, and so growing inside and out. And as we were reminded last Sunday, this is nothing more than carrying out the Great Commission that Jesus gave to his church just before he returned to heaven from which he had come. Remember he said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Now, if you didn't hear last week's message, I encourage you to listen on our website, but we saw then that this making disciples who are initiated into the church by baptism they are also taught by the church what and how it is they are to obey. And we saw that the Great Commission and the church go together. So we want to be, and remind ourselves at the beginning of this year that we want to be a church that makes disciples. In fact, I have said for the last few years, as we've completed the first half of our church's 
10-year plan, a plan I'll remind you about next week, that we want to be the most effective disciple-making branch of the church that we can possibly be. Let's pray now then. Ask God to help us as we look at what it is He has for us to do in terms of making disciples in His church. Father, we thank You for the Lord's Day. We thank You that the first day of the week is designated as the Lord's Day because this is the day that the Lord Jesus rose from the grave. And so in that sense, every Lord's Day is Easter for us. We thank you that we serve a living Savior. We thank you that the living Savior has all authority. The Lord Jesus, when he gave us the Great Commission, he said, all authority has been given to me. And so this mission to which you have called us is a privilege And it is not only possible, it will move forward exactly as you have planned because all authority is yours. So we need not fear, we need not worry, we need not fret about what's happening around us. We need count our blessings and especially at the beginning now of a new year. That we are your people, we are your church, we are carrying out your work. And you have all authority to give that to us, and you have complete power to make sure it advances exactly as you've designed. So thank you for allowing us to be a part of that. We ask you to grant us calm hearts. We ask you to grant us clear minds. As we again remind ourselves about the disciple-making task to which you have called us, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. As you entered, as each week, you should have received a copy of the outline for today's message. I say, first of all, that discipleship is for all people. Our church's theme verse is in verse 28 of Colossians chapter 1. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Here's why, so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. Now, the two terms there, admonishing and teaching, refer to giving our message to two different groups of people. The first one is for people who are not yet Christian. The second is for those who already are. The first word that's translated admonishing in verse 28 is the Greek word nutheteo. It's a concept which can broadly be defined as loving confrontation with the truth for the purpose of change. Loving confrontation with the truth for the purpose of change. The word is translated variously in the New Testament as instruct, sometimes counsel, sometimes warn. In this context, it refers to lovingly confronting unbelievers with the gospel for the purpose of conversion. New Testament scholar Curtis Vaughn says here it relates to non-Christians, the thought probably being that we seek to awaken each of them to his need of Christ. The word translated proclaim in that verse is not the common Greek word for preach, and so the expositor's Bible commentary says it perhaps has a wider significance than the more common word for preach in Paul's writings. So this is communication of the gospel in not just formal settings, but also informal settings. That is, it's not just what I'm doing now behind a pulpit in a more formal setting, but rather it's what you do. This proclaiming, it's what you can do, what we all can do when we're talking to someone across a fence 
or over coffee or at work. So if we are going to be a church that lives up to the requirements of our theme verse, it means we'll give the gospel in our personal interactions informally and also in our formal gatherings. We then, as the church, want to help you to do that. And so we offer trainings for personal evangelism, part of our Master Plan for Life course that we encourage everyone to take as part of our Midweek Community Institute. We'll offer that again this fall. It has a personal evangelism component. We've done that for two decades now, so a number of you have, have taken that. And as you had heard Pastor Larry announce, I'll be teaching a class called Good Soil starting a week from Wednesday, and I encourage you to register for that. Now, that class comes as a result of training that Brother Keith Bass our outreach coordinator, and I attended in Pennsylvania back in September, and it's that material that I'll primarily be using. And so we admonish by proclaiming the gospel to unbelievers personally, individually, and our church collectively wants to partner with you in doing that by training you, but also by formally evangelizing when we gather together both in our worship service, as we're doing now, but also and especially in our second hour Discovering God courses that are designed for that very purpose. Now, if we give the gospel then, those of us who are teaching, those of us who are leading in the preaching and teaching, if we do that, when we gather, it should give you confidence, we hope, to invite those for whom you're praying and you're working with so that it's a combination of what you do informally and what we do here more formally. Now, a few ways we do that as a church collectively to helpfully enhance what you do individually. I'll, I've talked about discovering God. I'm going to talk about that some more in just a minute. But we also do that here in this hour, our worship hour. We invite people to trust, to trust Christ. You all ever seen this particular slide? If you've been with us for any length of time, you've seen that dozens of times over the years. Often at the end of a message, we'll invite people to, to trust Christ. Invite people to trust Christ. What that means is that's an invitation. An invitation simply invites. Now, you say, duh, that, that sounds right. <laughs> but I, I say that because from time to time, I hear people over the years, maybe a handful of times, I've heard, uh, had people ask, why don't you give an invitation? And we give an invitation fairly regularly. Now, what they mean by then an invitation, it turns out, is something that they grew up with that was done at the church they grew up in. And that invitation consisted very often of inviting people to walk an aisle, to come forward. Uh, sometimes that's called the altar call at the, at the end of the service. But we don't do an altar call. We invite, we have an invitation. We don't do an altar call for a couple of reasons. One, uh, you know, we don't have an altar, turns out. So whatever we call it, it couldn't be an altar call. And the reason we don't have an altar is actually for a good theological reason, that there is only one altar for the New Testament Christian, and that's the cross of Jesus. So there's no altar up here for you to lay your sins down. On the altar of the cross, your sins were covered past, present, and future. We want to make sure people understand that. 
So that's one reason. And here's another you know, good thing, that if you ever get married, or you're engaged and you're getting married, nobody will ever get left at the altar at our, at our church <laughs> as well. We don't have one. But this altar call idea is, also has a, du- a dubious history to it. Uh, if you want to know that history, uh, just Google Charles Finney, F-I-N-N-E-Y, F-I-N-N-E-Y. Don't do that now. Just write his name down, do it later. But Charles Finney and the Second Great Awakening. And the anxious bench, as it was initially called, was actually developed by Finney. And if you read about Finney, Finney's theology was not something you would want to emulate. The methodology that he created caught on. Many people have used it for for decades. It's not sinful to do that. I'm not suggesting that. But you will find nowhere in the Bible that you have someone walking an aisle. And then here is a, a final reason that we don't, and that's because too many people associate walking an aisle with their salvation. And nobody is saved by walking an aisle or doing anything except believing in Jesus. And that's why we invite the way we do. You can receive Jesus Christ in your seat. You can do that at home. You can do that in the car. You can do that in your bedroom. You can do that at at any time. We don't want it to be associated with a particular act. And so we want to invite people to trust Christ. We do that often. It's one way that we can partner with you and the work that you you do personally and individually in evangelizing. But I mentioned our second hour, Discovering God. Now, two times this coming year, in the spring and the fall, we will have series as we always do, specifically designed to help you invite non-Christians to hear topics about which they may be interested. And over the years, we've done topics like, what's the difference between world religions? You mean the Bible teaches that? It's an examination of the Bible's teaching on ethical issues. You, why you can trust the Bible, the origin and uniqueness of the Bible. We've done marriage classes, we've done parenting classes that we've advertised to the community Big Bang or Big God, that's an examination of what the Bible teaches about origins. What's the world coming to? What does the Bible say about future things, last things, the end days? Money matters on finances, from self-help to God's help, the Bible's teaching on why we do what we can do, why we do what we do and how we can change, how to find meaning in a meaningless world, and so on. Now, the next one of these is April the 16th, that's the week after Easter. In the meantime, Dr. Combs is doing, as Pastor Larry announced, uh, the next three weeks, teaching second hour, starting today on the origin of denominations. And then on the 29th, last Sunday of this month, we're going to have gospel-centered marriage in here for 10 weeks up to Easter. And those who are not in gospel-centered marriage will be in the class, Truth for Life, that I'll be leading that Pastor Larry mentioned. So I hope that you will be here either for the marriage material or the Truth For Life class. But as it relates to our outreach together, I hope you'll get in the habit, if you're not already, of staying for second hour so that especially for our outreach series that we have have here, to perhaps then have you here to meet new people who come. But even if you don't meet those new people who come, honestly, here's the truth of the matter. A fuller room makes a new person feel more comfortable. Now, I talk about the Discovering God series and the purpose for which we have them 
in our second hour when we do our newcomers orientation. Most of you have taken that, but for many it's been years, and so it's easy to forget the rationale for why we do things the way we do, and I certainly understand that. But I think there is another reason, and it's good, I think, for us to take some time to examine this and see if some of us can make some other choices. I think there's another reason that we get in the habit of blowing off second hour. And that is that we completely identify church with this hour, with the worship service. Church is the worship service in the minds of too many of us. If I attend this hour, the worship service, then I, quote, went to church. But that's a problem on a couple of levels. I think it's an unconscious holdover of a sacramental idea of what church is. Unfortunately, in church history, there's been the idea that is still very prominent today that you go to church to get something, now notice, that you cannot get anywhere else. In fact, you have to go to church to get it. For many churches, they observe Eucharist or celebrate Mass and Roman Catholicism, and you have to be there to get it. can't do it at home. You can't do it on your own. You do it there at church, and so you go. But you put in your time, and you, you move on. But we're not Catholic. <laughs> Communion is not the Mass. It's not a sacrament, and we don't do it most weeks. In fact, we live in a day when literally everything that we do today, you could do another way without coming here. With live stream and recordings, you can sing along at, at home, especially when we get mics that I'm told we have now. Do we have mics now that we're going to hang? Okay. And in the, oh, they're there. Okay. You were mic'd today when you were singing. And so there were people at home going, who is that off-key like that? <laughs> so you could be at home and you could be singing, you could be singing along now with, with that. Or, if you prefer, you can put the Gettys on or Stuart Cownand or your favorite Christian group. You can read the Bible on your own. Pastor Larry read for us, but you can read the Bible on your own. The truth is you can get better preaching by finding guys online who have been marketed, and so they have staff to do everything else, and all they do is preach, and as a result, it's way better. But if you're inclined to do that, if you're in the hospital, you have some need, they're not going to come. I'll just let, you, just let you know that. You can give your offering online. You can have a group of Christian friends with whom you fellowship over bagels and coffees or something more elaborate. If you come to church for the elements of the service, you can do all of those without coming. It's not why we, we gather. We gather because we are committed to the Lord, covenanted together and committed to one another, and committed to carrying out His mission together. We gather because we're committed to the Lord. We are covenanted together and committed to one another, and we are committed to carrying out His mission together. The idea that I go to church to kind of put in my time is also a problem because this building is not the church. You can't actually go to church because the church is not a place. But rather, the church is a people who are on mission together. 
Again, now hear this, the church is a people who are on mission together. So this place is not the church, it is our ministry center. And that's actually what we call it, on purpose, to try to eliminate the misunderstanding. And I have been known to correct people when they refer to the building as the church, even washing their mouths out with soap, so that they don't make that mistake again. We don't go to church as if to put in our time, but rather we come to grow and train and bond to carry out our mission. Now, I will say again next week, but for now, one resolution many need to make is that we are going to be together for those purposes. If I'm a member of this body, it means I'm where the body is whenever I can be. We gather for strategic purpose, purposes, and that gathering is, is essential. Now, I'm thankful that we have live stream for those in our church family who are unable to attend. And we indeed have folks who are in that category. We miss seeing them. They miss seeing us. And so a shout out to our live stream brothers and sisters who are watching us that way. And we have people in circumstances where perhaps you can only sit for, for so long. Perhaps you have a physical issue. We have some people who are spiritually single. That is, they're a Christian, but their spouse is not. And they don't completely control the family schedule and all of that. And so there are different circumstances. And, and of course, we, we understand that. But for those who are not shut in or otherwise providentially hindered, live stream is not a replacement for the gathering. And it should not make it harder for you to decide if you're coming because that decision should already be made. Now, at the beginning of this new year, you don't decide whether you're coming on Sunday on Sunday. Make the resolution that unless providentially hindered, I am, we are, period. And you're in for what it is that we're doing together, including our collective outreach in our second hour, Discovering God. Now, some of you are sitting there going, man, I was planning on leaving second hour today, and he just hit that. <laughs> so if that's the case for you, we're not going to be standing at the door and watching to, to make you feel bad. But I, really, I do urge you to adjust going forward as we partner together in what we're doing here, again, including in that Discovering God second hour. In addition to the, the good soil training that begins in 10 days and Discovering God classes as ways to partner together in our collective witness, this Wednesday, uh, Brother Keith is meeting with our ministry coordinators to discuss the idea of each ministry having its own means of outreach. And this fall, we're going to look to have some evangelistic home groups in addition to our Sunday evening community groups. Discipleship begins with evangelism. It begins with giving the gospel. We do that personally, individually. We do that formally and informally. We partner together as the church collectively to help you in your witness with some of the things we do here. It's for all people, and I say in your outline, discipleship is for all people and particularly for all believers. Now, I've emphasized all in the outline because the word everyone is in verse 28. 
In fact, although it shows up only twice in the New International Version, which most of you have, and that's the Bible that the men passed out just a bit ago, the word everyone appears twice in, in the NIV in verse 28, but it's actually there three times in the original manuscript. So instead of admonishing and teaching everyone, it actually says admonishing everyone and teaching everyone so that we may, we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. And so there is no one who's to be left out and no one who should opt out. You see, all believers are disciples. In fact, the words believer and disciple in the book of Acts are synonyms. Now, in the project that I completed this past year for Westminster Seminary, I identified six components that the Bible teaches that should be present in a church's discipleship program. One of which is, one of those six is that it needs to be inclusive. Inclusive. In explaining that, I said this. The model proposed here obliges members to opt out of the process rather than opt in. That is, it's expected that all participate rather than only a select few. One concern sometimes expressed with an opt-out approach is that it could be too heavy-handed. However, since all believers are disciples, then it seems eminently reasonable to expect all to participate at least as much as they are prov providentially able. And in my experience, most people appreciate having a track to follow rather than being on their own to figure out how best to grow. Now, this opt-out approach is based on an important theological point, contrary to what many have taught. There is no, biblically, there is no separation between believers and disciples or between justification and sanctification. A believer, that is, one who is justified, declared righteous before God, wants to be increasingly set apart, that is, sanctified, as he or she grows. But this false dichotomy between those is widespread. Some years ago, Rick Warren, some of you remember that name, Rick Warren out in California, Purpose Driven Church. He wrote this book called The Purpose Driven Church. A lot of good concepts in it, and he's famous for this series of concentric circles. I don't know if you can see those. They all start with a C. Whenever somebody puts something together that all starts with the same letter, you should be suspicious right away. Not too suspicious because I do it sometimes in the sermon outline. But. but let me explain what those are. You have the outer circle, the largest, obviously. It says a community. And, and Warren says the community is made up of everyone you have the potential to reach on a given Sunday. They live near your church. They're possibly aware of your church's existence. They may even visit occasionally. For the most part, though, they are unchurched. They likely haven't decided to follow Jesus yet. So far, so good. Then, though, within that, you have the crowd. That consists of all the people who attend your church on a regular basis. They're present a week or two per month or more. They consider themselves to be part of your church even if they haven't joined it yet. But they're not really involved beyond attending on Sundays. Well, you do not want that to be very long where people consider themselves to be part of the church when in fact they are not until they are. Until we join. 
until we declare ourselves and covenant in membership. But that's what he calls the crowd. Then there's the congregation. That includes everyone who attends and who has become a member of the church. These are people who attend regularly, give regularly, and support the vision and values of your church. One thing he left out there is that these are people who are saved. <laughs> these are supposed to be people who are Christians. These are people who are regenerate. And they become then part of the church. They become members. But then within that, you have, and here's where it really starts to fall apart, you have the committed. When members are growing in their relationship with Jesus and establishing the habits and disciplines of a disciple, they're part of the committed. These believers are not only members who attend, they walk with God and are growing up spiritually. Hear this, friends. You committed when you came to Jesus. The saved Christians are committed. He is not just your Savior. It's another false dichotomy. We make these dichotomies between believers and disciples and justification and sanctification. Another one is Jesus can be your Savior, but He's not your Lord. It's not the case. Jesus is your Lord, and you are committed to Him. And then within that, you have what he calls the core. Among the committed are people who get involved and serve others through the ministries of the church. We think of these as the core. They're generally those who give their time and their loyalty to your church. So in doing this now, you're buying into the idea that it's okay to have this further dichotomy between the sort of green berets at the church who actually serve and do stuff and get things done and everybody else, nah. And forget what Ken thinks, thinks about it. As you just do a cursory reading of your New Testament, see if that's an assumption that's made. Where at the end of Paul's letters, he just names all of these people, just common people, saints, who are involved in the Lord's work, doing various things. And then out of that, there is people who will be commissioned to go out from your church, which is a great thing. And so we need to make sure we have the right mindset. If, if I'm a Christian, I'm a disciple, I am in the process of being sanctified, I am committed to the Lord Jesus, and I'm committed to what the Lord Jesus is doing in His world through His church. Now this word admonishing in our theme verse in Colossians 1.28 refers to the gospel, communicating the gospel to, to non-Christians, as I said, and we do that informally and formally, teaching in that verse refers to instruction to believers in the way of Christ, building them up in the faith by the Word of God. It's to be done with all wisdom. And since wisdom is the application of knowledge, then our teaching will apply what we know about our hearers in the congregation and their needs. It'll inform how it is we go about it. So discipleship is for all people. All believers are, in fact, disciples, and discipleship has one destination. And our common destination is that we, according to verse 28, become fully mature in Christ, which is another way of saying being conformed to the image of Christ. If you'll just turn a page over to chapter 3 in your Bible the passage that Pastor Larry read earlier, he read chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Look at verse 10. 
Verse 10 of chapter 3, you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Now, chapter 3 is part of a second of two major sections in Colossians, which starts in verse 1. Verse 1 of chapter 3, since then you have been raised with Christ. You see that? And then it begins to tell us what we should do because of who we are. Verse 5, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. And then there's a colon there in the NIV, and it goes on to tell you how you do that, what it is you put to death. So the then and the therefore of verse 1 and 5 links the doctrinal section of this letter, the book of Colossians in chapters 1 and 2, with now the practical section in chapters 3 and 4. And you have that same pattern in Paul's letters elsewhere, the book of Romans. You all remember the famous passage in Romans chapter 12 and verse 1? I urge you, therefore, in view of God's mercy, that you present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy I urge you, therefore, in view of God's mercies. Where are those mercies described? In chapters 1 through 11. And now in chapter 12, he goes to, all right, because of who you are in Christ, this is what you do, chapter 12. Does the same thing in the book of Ephesians. First three chapters are who you are in Christ. And then you come to chapter 4, and he says, I urge you then, as a prisoner for the Lord, to pursue your calling, he says, in Christ to act worthy of the calling that you've received. Same thing in the book of Philippians, first three chapters, and then in chapter four, the practical section. You'll see a pattern then here. You have what theologians call a didactic or teaching section and a hortatory or a practical application section. And that first part is always, in the Greek language, filled with verbs, Greek verbs that are in the indicative mood. What it means is this, it's, it's just telling you, describing truths about you as a Christian and a child of God and what God has done for you in Christ. And that first part is always like that. But then the second part is in the imperative mood, an imperative, a command. Now, do this then. Based on who you are, this is what you do. So author Brian Chappell has said helpfully, every imperative of Scripture, what we are to do for God rests on the indicative who we are in our relationship with God, and the order is not reversible. The human instinct with every non-Christian religion reverses the order, teaching that who we are before God is based on what we do for God. Thus, any preaching that's distinctively Christian must keep listeners from confusing or inverting our who and our do. What Christians do is based on who we are in Christ. We obey because God has loved us and united us to Himself by His Son. We are not united to God, nor do we make Him love us because we have obeyed Him. Our obedience is in response to His love. It is not a purchase of that love. And so, friends, remember that. 
we have in common who we are in Jesus. We all have the same destination to be made into the image of Jesus. And so foundational discipleship is the same for all of us, and that's the way it's laid out in Scripture. It tells us what's universally true before talking particularly about your situation in Romans, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, and so on. And so before speaking to husbands and wives and fathers and mothers and slaves and masters, which would be employees and employers, it first lays the foundation for all of us, no matter those individual callings, and says in verse 11, as Pastor Larry read, there is no Jew or Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but, in Christ, but Christ is all and is in all. And in the parallel verse, almost identical in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28, there is neither male nor female in Christ. That's our standing before Him, and Paul always makes sure that we understand that. That Christian identity knows no gender. All believers, male and female, are called to live quorum Deo, that is in the presence of God, being conformed into the image of Christ. And so we make too much of things like theology for women or theology for men. I mean, you know, there's really just theology. I mean, the theology is no different for a woman or a man. The truth is the same for men and women. We've got all these Bibles that are marketed out there for like everything. Bibles for couples. Bibles for patriots. Bibles for left-handed tennis players. All right, I made that one up, but it's good, but it's coming. <laughs> So in our discipleship process, in our church, it means we make the assumption that all of us have the same standing before Jesus, before God, because of Jesus. And then, and th only then, do we branch out into the various callings in which God has, has placed us as men and women, different stations in life. This understanding your identity in Christ is, is powerful. Because it helps you to understand that you are not beholden and enslaved to anything or anyone but Jesus. Including that particular sin that you struggle with. A couple of weeks ago, I met with a young man, not from our church, but I met with a young man who has an ongoing struggle, years-long struggle. And I reminded him of who he is in Christ and that he is no longer a slave. And he told me, you don't know how liberating that is for me. Because I see counselors all the time and they tell me this is who you are. Listen, I'm fine if you struggle with alcohol in your past and you go to AA and they, I know, have a mantra that says, I'm an alcoholic, I will always be an alcoholic. I understand why that's done. I'm not telling you not to go to AA. I am telling you this, though. Don't leave it at, I'm an alcoholic. You say this, I'm a child of God who struggles with alcohol. Don't lead with, 
you know I'm divorced. No, I'm a child of God who is divorced. My situation is not my identity. And too many people feel determined by their sin. But the Christian doctrine one has said of conversion helps Christians to know that they are not. Even when the fight is long and every two steps forward seems to be followed by one step backward or more, the power of change comes from the recognition of what Christ has done in making a person new. Christianity gives the life of the Son in whose image we are being remade. It's a life of holiness, love, and unity with God's people. It's a life of suffering, but of knowing the hope and power of the resurrection amidst such suffering. And here's the amazing thing. Such assurances belong not only to the so-called imperatives of the New Testament, go and be holy and unified with each other, they also belong to those indicatives. This is what you are. This is a new self, and that new self is one with the saints and is holy like the Son. Praise God. So discipleship has one destination, to be conformed to the image of Christ. And we seek to move you toward that, I say in your outline, through three major objectives. I just have those for you to fill in without comment because I just want you to remember the three objectives in our church's mission statement are, we help people, you should be able to do this because we've got it on poles out in the parking lot, we've got it on a big banner out here in the, in the lobby, but we help people learn about God and love Him and others, and live for His purpose. Discipleship has one destination, that is Christ-likeness, but it has, lastly, many pathways. In chapter 3 of Colossians, it is not until verse 17 that you get to wives and husbands and fathers and masters and slaves, again, employees and employers, and that's because it needs to be in that order after we identify what we have in common, who we are. Theology is truth, and it's truth for men and women and whoever. But truth is applied to our varied circumstances. And so we have common roles, but we have distinct callings. And so some women are wives, not all, of course. Some women are mothers, not all, of course. Some men are husbands, some men are fathers. Some are employees, not all are. These are circumstances in which God has called us to live out that identity. And so if we are going to be a church that makes disciples, we have to recognize the commonness that we all have, but then there is variety in that God has given us these different callings. And so we have to have foundational understanding of who we are, but then pathways for men and women. We have, and in particular, I want to give a shout out to Pastor Rich, who's been working very hard for many years to create pathways for our men, and we desire to create parallel pathways for our women as well, so that any man or woman can come to us and say, hey, I want to be a mature believer in Jesus. What do I do? And we say, here are your steps. And by the way, we have these. But then he, and, and, and all of us should want that, right? We all should say, I want to be a mature man or woman in Jesus. And so we point you to what you 
are to do to get grounded. And that would include serving the Lord as a mature man or woman in Jesus. But I also want to know how it is I'm to handle myself in my home and at work. And for some, home may be work. You may be a homemaker. So how do I do that, man or woman? And we point you to, and again, we have steps for you to take with that. But then perhaps you come and they say, you know what? I'd like to lead an area of ministry in the church. What do I need to do to be somebody who can be a coordinator of one of the ministries in the church? Here's what you do. You know, I'd like to go to this fourth step. I'd like to be a deacon, perhaps, or a deacon's wife in the church, if God so calls my husband. Here's what you do. An elder, an elder's wife, pastor slash church planter, six categories, men and women, each of them with things for us to do. Now, we have started to try to put that into a graphic, and it's just way too busy to put on a screen. So pray for us as we figure, it out, figure that out. And all of that is related to what you've heard me talk about over the last few years, what we call our, our road to maturity. We're all on the road to maturity. And that uh, envision then a road that all of us are on, same road going in the same direction toward Christ-likeness. But then that same road branches out for men and women. And then for men and for women, there are various branches, roads that go off from that, depending on the specific callings that God has given us. And so that's what I've just described. And then that road to maturity also takes us in the course of life through the transitions of life that every one of us experiences. And so you experience going through junior high or having a junior higher. That's a transition, and, and things can go south at these transitions if we don't negotiate them well. And so our church wants to offer instruction on how to do that, resources to supplement that, mentoring for people from people who have already gone through that, transitions like that, junior high, I'm going into junior high, or I have a child who's doing that. I'm graduating from high school. I have a graduate, what am I going to do? What are the next steps that I need to take in life in order to be productive in my walk with the Lord and in life? If God calls me to get married, how do I prepare for that? If God gives us children, how do I prepare for that first child? As I go into midlife, how do I avoid the all-too-common midlife crisis? Lots of people in God's church who have wisdom about all of that so we can help you with every piece of that. And then when you come to retirement, how do we handle retirement in the most productive way for the Lord Jesus? All of those, and then along the way, and lastly, there are crises that occur. Things that happen in a fallen world for which we need help, and our counseling center is designed to help with that. I will talk about that next week and where we are with that and the other ministries that impinge upon what I've, what I've said. Here's your take-home truth. Christians have the same goal, that is to become like Christ, in our different callings. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you again for the privilege of 
being your servants. We thank you for the privilege of being your children. And then because of who we are, we do what we do. We do it gladly. And so, Lord, I pray that that will be true of me until you call me home, that that will be true of all of my brothers and sisters in this room, that they desire to serve the God whose child they are in the various places to which you have called us. May we, as your church collectively, do an effective job at offering pathways for every one of your children, wherever you have called them and whatever is happening in their lives, to help them take next steps in their situation toward conformity to the image of Jesus. Lord, when it is done, when our ministry together is through, when we stand before you, what we want to bring to you is an offering of lives that you have allowed us to be instrumental in as they grew in you. May that be my goal. May that be our goal collectively. And may you graciously give us fruit for that. And we will give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together for our closing song.